You're listening to the Inner Light with Ellen podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Wyoming Deloy. I'm a coach in Portland, Oregon, who works with people across the US and occasionally the world. I help people to transition from where they are to where they want to be, removing limiting beliefs, barriers, and imposter syndrome along the way. On this show, I bring you conversations with leaders in wellness, spirituality, healing, mindfulness, and more. We also dive into themes around intuition, equity, racial justice, and what it means to be living here in the 21st century. I'm excited to bring you each episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And if you love the show, leave a five-star review so others can find us. If you want to learn more about my work and what I do, go to ellenwyomingdeloy.com. Thanks. Enjoy the episode. Hi, welcome back again. I'm here with Nathan Baptiste of EDI Mindfulness Consulting for our fourth installment of our series on equity, diversity, and inclusion. Whoop, and there's a car horn. Welcome back, Nathan. Hello, good to be back. Um, we're going to talk today. So we left off, if you listened to the last episode on mindfulness and the sort of the, the way that mindfulness is important as a tool and a practice within, um, developing equity, diversity, and inclusion. And we, at the end of the last episode started to talk about the tool for mindfulness being necessary. So you can start to notice, um, when you're within a culture of dominance or you're experiencing a culture of equity and don't worry, we're going to break down. Nathan's going to really help break down what that is, because how could you even start to notice it if we're not sure what those characteristics are? Um, I'll actually pause there. I was going to read something, but I think I'm not going to just yet. So Nathan, welcome back. Anything, anything to on-ramp us here? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for framing it up. Yeah, with our last conversation, as you said, we were looking at how to be mindful of how we're showing up and thinking about ways that we can internalize um, a culture of behaviors that can be oppressive, right, to ourselves and to other people, right? When when we talk about things like perfectionism, when we talk about things like putting products over people, um, individualism to the extreme of not valuing communities, um, kind of bypassing human experiences uh, for business or for other uh, motives, using coercive communication, blaming and shaming folks, uh, organizations often and individuals um, experience a lack of psychological safety in those types of cultural environments. And it's, you know, it's one of the leading issues with folks being happy and fulfilled uh, in life in general and, and certainly in the workplace and, and the fall of retention and the fall of folks feeling like they're, um, they're bringing their best selves into their work. And, and so this is a major issue when we're talking about the quality of life for anyone. And then even more heightened when we're talking about how do we really value diversity and inclusion and how do we really create uh, equity or a culture of equity in our organizations. And so it's an invitation for us to go further now and, and explore and talk about what are the habits that 
keep reproducing inequitable environments, right? And in our, in our organizational culture and in our interpersonal relationships and how we engage with each other. Yeah. And you, you just said something there. It, it was coming up for me. And then when you said within our, not just our workplaces, but our interpersonal relationships and the way that we are in our own selves, like there's such room for like when I think about myself in this context, there is such room for healing because um, Nathan is going to go through this, but there's a there's a chart and we're actually going to share a PDF link for it. Um, so you can see it after this episode or as you're listening, if you'd like, um, that walks through sort of the comparatives between a culture of dominance and a culture of equity. But as I was listening to this and Nathan and I had a pretty good conversation before we started recording, um, I was like, oh, this is so much about how I grew up. I was raised inside of a culture and it's blended, right? There are aspects of both cultures that were in my family as I was growing up, but there was so much emphasis on things that are in the column for culture of dominance that learning to recognize it in myself is the first step, right? Of allowing myself to, to not have perfectionism, for example, is one of the things for not to um, not feel deficit oriented, that I'm not good enough. Right. I think that there are a lot of common experiences here that um, that that lend themselves to a lot of our experiences, because I'm going to forgive me, Nathan, I'm just going to ramble for a second here. Um, One of the things I realized, so I'm I'm raised in a blended family, a mixed race, blended family. My dad is um, Polish American. My mom is uh, Korean American, but from Korea, um, South Korea. And uh, so much about an immigrant experience, uh, at least at the time, my mom immigrated in the 1970s, right? For her was so much about assimilation and then ensuring that her children were assimilated as American and not seen as other. She worked so hard to make sure that we were not othered, which of course we were, we were othered from the outset. We looked so different than the people in our communities, my brother and I, um, that I was not allowed to learn Korean. So I would be at my grandma's house with my aunties and uncles and cousins and everyone, but my brother and I could speak Korean. Um, cause my cousins immigrated when they were older. So they were born in Korea. And, um, the the way that my dad operated was very much in a deficit oriented space. He was very hard on himself. Um, he had really intense uh, experience with his own childhood, but there was a lot of individualism, obedience, perfectionism, um, a bit of silencing and denial. I'm listing things off on this chart, right in the culture of dominance. And kind of just seeing it here, I've been interested in this for 20 plus years because I saw the effects of this on my nuclear family and it was not positive in a lot of ways. And it makes me think about interpersonal relationship, familial relationships, the room for healing. And the point around this is that my parents were this way out of survival within a dominant culture. Like I had to not be othered. So my mom silenced like the Asian part of my upbringing so that I would not be othered, but she othered myself from myself in and move for me to be safe. She -hmm. was always trying to advance safety and acceptance for me. She was trying to pave a way forward in a white dominant culture that cut off parts of myself, right? And the very dreamy artistic 
part of myself. My mom really supported it, but like it wasn't productive, right? It wasn't an income producing avenue. So I didn't really ever have a choice to pursue like the arts if I had wanted to. I was like, oh, I need to like get serious and stop wandering around if I'm ever going to make something of myself and make my parents proud of me, right? There's all this. And I'm, I'm pretty sure this is not foreign to a lot of people, these, these aspects of dominant culture in our personal lives. As Nathan has brought these up, I was like, oh, I can have more compassion for my parents. They were a product of the soup. They didn't just make bad choices. They were doing their absolute best within the structure, right? My dad's parents escaped Prussia or grandparents, <laughs> like the German occupation of Poland when Poland got occupied by everybody, right? Everyone like in my history is <laughs> like in a Prussian background, but it's like so many of us do, right? I don't even want to like, it's not a comparative. It's just like, oh, we're surviving. Let's go to America or we're not surviving. We're being brought to America and then we're being oppressed in America. And how are we surviving today? That's not my story, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Ellen, for sharing part of your story there. And, and, and I love the connections, right. Intergenerationally, right. To your parents and grandparents and the violence that they had to confront, whether actual physical violence or, um, social, emotional violence, psychological violence in terms like a, being expected to assimilate, to survive is a form of violence right? Being enacted on people. When you tell people that showing up in your language and your culture and your gender and whatever your identity is, is not the norm. It's not, you're not going to get as far if you be yourself. Um, as so many of us receive that message, um, that's violence, right? And that's a culture. That's what we mean when we talk about a culture of dominance, when we're exerting, and I say we intentionally because we can all be complicit in it. And part of how we're all complicit in it often is because it becomes so normalized that we don't even know that we're, we're in that soup, as you put it, right? We, we're just, and sometimes we do, but oftentimes we can be uh, feeling a, 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 that there have been egregious harms and, and aware of what has happened to us but not be aware of how we might be perpetuating it for other folks, right? Based on gender, based on sexual orientation, based on race, based on ability, um, things that might not be an oppression that we're dealing with directly. So we're less aware about it. Right. And it goes back to what kind of biases do we hold and which ones are unconscious and which intersecting identities, um, really bring those things to the forefront in our direct experience or not. And I think this, this power over dynamic that prioritizes certain identities um, and makes them the norm and marginalizes other identities. That's, that's that culture of uh, dominance that has such a violent impact on us on so many, from, from the very physical level of, of where we see police brutality against communities of color, all the way to, to the workplace environment where it's not psychologically safe for folks to speak what they have to say based on their different identities or simply because the culture itself doesn't make it safe for anybody to say things. Right. And, and the airlines, um, industry, they, they, uh, they had that issue. Right. And perhaps still do in some cases, but one of the things that they had to do about it was they realized that if, if there's not enough psychological safety for folks who are, less high in the hierarchy of authority to 
check in, for example, with the pilot and say, hey, I'm concerned about this because they're afraid they're going to get shut down and that that might have a negative consequence on them. That could be a life and death situation. And it was right in, in, in previous uh, times. And so they've created models to make sure that they're able to practice creating an environment where it's safe to communicate with each other. That's just one little uh, example, but highlighting how important it is to shift from this kind of culture of dominance that doesn't allow us to express ourselves and move to a culture of equity where no matter what your position is, no matter what your identity is, you can show up fully and you don't have to be worried about the consequences of that. That's kind of the goal. That's the the trajectory. Yeah. And as we're talking about that, if I just think about myself personally, it has been so much work to show up as myself and to take off the layers and layers and layers of robes and cloaks and shields that I have built around myself over these 40 years. Um, And it's like still a process of shedding the stuff I thought I needed to survive as uh, myself, right? I don't know if you can speak to the same experiences, um, but to kind of keep emerging as a more real version of yourself. And you and I, we also talked about our privilege that we've kind of created extremely safe working environments, for ourselves that work for us, that work for our families, that work for our finances. And that is not something that everyone has or has been able to do. And so there's a, there's a, there's like many pockets of equity that we've strived for that we're able to do individually, right? Which is still funny. It's individual. It's not collective. Um, And before, I mean, I know you and I can dive so deep in the weeds on this, and I might have already gone too deep. I want to pull it back up a little bit. Nathan, can you walk us through characteristics off of this list a little bit so people can have a a bigger framework as we're kind of discussing culture of dominance, characteristics, culture of equity, and then I can remind us what I just said if we need to come back to unpacking anything. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. (laughs) For sure. So... Kind of to the earlier point when we were talking about a culture of dominance, it's it's characterized by exerting power over others, right? And so, like some of the points that we were talking about is being deficit-oriented, uh, being fixed on having a fixed mindset and, and needing to have perfectionism, right? Needing to have things in a perfect one right way of doing things, right? It creates a sense of gatekeeping of you have to show up in this way, only this way, you have to get results only in such a way um, and present in only such a way uh, to get full acceptance or to get advancement or to get promotions or to get acceptance in a group, right? So many different ways that there are consequences for not behaving in a, in a controlled and policed way um, when products are put over people, right? When, when people are expected uh, to assimilate. Right? And be, or be obedient in some way when the individual uh, is prioritized at the expense of larger communities, right? When, when the individual is seen as I did everything myself, brought myself up by my bootstraps, so to speak, um, when, and, and, and disregarding the importance of our interdependence and how uh, 
really nobody does anything alone in a society if they're part of the social fabric um, and, and work with other people because everyone is, is, is interconnected. We're getting support in one way or another. It doesn't mean we don't have hardships that we deal with. There's a um, lot of big infrastructure investments that some people benefit from more than others. <laughs> There's no yes. wrapping. Like we all have roads we can drive on to the cool new place, right? The roads are there. It's not yourself. <laughs> right. Right. And, and I love that you pointed out that some have more access to than others. And because oftentimes it's taken for granted and in a culture of dominance, um, certain identities are um, made the norm and and prioritized in the way policies are designed and the way decisions are made and where resources are allocated. That's why we have food deserts and banking deserts and predatory lending that's disproportionately in black communities and communities of color, uh, indigenous efficient transportation systems that don't meet the needs of all the people who don't have vehicles. <laughs> right, right. Where where there's environment increased rates of environmental pollution and health issues, right, is also zip code oriented, right? And so that has the intersections of race and socioeconomic status all over it. So these are the manifestations of a culture of dominance and how decisions are being made. And then when we shift over, so part of the work, like it's very, it's a lot easier to point outward, right, externally and say, this is the system or this is the man or, you know, there's a lot of different terms that folks will use to say, this is watching. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. This is the government, the Democrat, they put whatever. And sure, there are systems at play and we do need to look at the systems, but it's not a, in a dualistic frame. We also need to look at what are our own spheres of influence and where might we ourselves as individuals internally buy into these systems, right? Perhaps not consciously, perhaps some of the things that we're doing are complicit uh, with our own oppression or the oppression, oppression of other groups. And to assume that we're beyond it um, is actually one of the issues, right? It's one of the problems is that um, it continues to make the, the cultures of dominance invisible when we're not able to openly reflect about them and see how we've been influenced by them ourselves. Just like you were reflecting about how your parents were influenced by it. Um, and I can do the same and say, yeah, I can see my parents were use corporal punishment, for example, which... To, similar to what you were describing, in, re in the moment, it was terrifying. Um, in retrospect, it was for my safety, right? In their mind. I, and It was a teachable moment. Don't do that again. You'll get hurt. We'll hurt you. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that I learned with my kids today is that the lesson that I don't need to, fortunately, I, and times change too, perhaps, um, I don't need to use corporal punishment because it, it has consequences. It's violence. It's teaching my children that to get them to do what I want them to do, violence is an okay method of communication. And so sometimes people need to do what they need to do to survive. And so I, you know, it's not to pass judgment on past generations where the rod was used as a way to like snap folks to attention in life-threatening situations, perhaps, right? There's a context for that. 
that has unfortunately carried on across generations, right? These type, not just physical violence, but many types of violence, psychological violence, so many forms that have become abusive to people because it's rooted in violence, right? And that's what a culture of dominance is. And so how are, that's what I mean when I'm saying, how are we checking in? I had to check in with myself when I started uh, spanking my kids and seeing that it was having negative impact on them. Like it was, they were not um, learning the lesson that I expected them to learn from that. Right. They were acting out more violently actually. Can and so, just, yeah. I just want to have a parenting real moment with you that I have the, so I also, I was spanked. It was never more than like as a child. So that was the extent of corporal punishment in my home. And it ended probably when I was like nine it was, it didn't go for a long time. Um, but I was afraid of my dad if he was angry. Right. And, um, with my children, um, I've like, I, I probably have spanked my oldest like three or four times up until, and when he was young, like, and I, it was this weird thing. So just don't hate on me internet world. But, um, when my son was three, he looked at me and he said, it's not okay to touch my body like that. Cause they were doing mm. a lot of body sovereignty work in his preschool. And I was stopping him at the time from like doing something to his baby sister. And I was like, you need to know that this is not okay. And this is the immediate consequence. And it was one of those like unlearning the toxic um, reactivity from how it was role modeled for me. Right. Yes. He still remembers it. Right. I'm like, there's this whole part about I'm deeply ashamed and I'm deeply aware of how terrible it is because it decenters their humanity when you are a giant person um, using corporal punishment on a small body. It's absolutely not okay. And if I could go back and like, <laughs> I want to say punch myself in the face for having done it, which is violence in and of itself. <laughs> if I could go not back that, and like that. teach that younger me who was an early parent who did not know enough and was only leaning on the parenting example she had as a child, yes. it would have been really helpful. But we have since, we are so, we are the most anti-corporal punishment family today. And my son will always be the one to be like, you guys messed up. Like, he'll just tell us we messed up. <laughs> <laughs> right. As, as, as we, as we will do as humans, yes. right. I'm, and I want to be the first to own it, um, as well. And if we're ever to get out of a culture of dominance and, and which is, you know, rooted in, in different forms of violence, we have to be able to do our own reflective healing work. We have to be able to check ourselves right? For where we've adopted these behaviors. And it's not that they didn't have a purpose, right? And it's not to, it, it, farthest from my mind is to judge folks for what they've done, but rather just to check what is perpetuating more violence and harm and what is a shift away from that. And so where I want to, what, where I want us to explore and talk about a little bit is not just what are we moving away from, but what are we moving towards? What are we, what is it that a culture of equity is about? Right. And we actually talked about it in our last um, check-in in our last podcast. Um, it's about compassion. It's about 
showing up, how we show up being as important as what we do, right, for the intention of helping people get out of suffering, ultimately, right? Helping people be free, helping people be happy, um, not just caring about ourselves in an individualistic mindset, but also caring about what's the impact of the work that I do, of the actions, of the way that I talk to people in my day-to-day life, right? And having a commitment to that uh, and to be able to have that capacity of compassion is not something that we just flip a switch on, right? It's something that actually requires active practice, right? It's not, it's not that we have to learn it per se, but we do have to unlearn some of the culture of dominant behaviors um, that, that keep reenacting violence in our societies, right? Um, and so how do we unlearn that? We start to pay attention to how are we being mindful of being kind to ourselves? And I, I think it, it is valuable sometimes to start with ourselves because a lot of times we say, oh, you know, I live my whole life for these children or for for these students or for the social service agency that I work for or X, Y, and Z in my family. And it's true. And if we're unable to also stop and look at what do I need for my health and wellness, um, how, how am I talking to myself? Right? How am I treating myself? And if we can be honest with ourselves and see when we're doing ourselves harm and discontinue that, right? Stop doing the things that are harmful to us and start doing the things that are taking care of ourselves. Uh, it's like the analogy of, of putting on the oxygen mask in an emergency in an airplane. You put yours on first in order to be able to have the capacity to help others. And so this is the same sense of what self-compassion does to allow us to really have more capacity for compassion for others. And and it's a connection to mindfulness and equity too. Both of them have the essential purpose of liberation, right? Coming out of suffering for ourselves, for our communities, for for our loved ones, for everyone. Um, and, And they're interconnected because you can't just do it for yourself successfully, And I don't think you can do it for others without also doing your own inner work. And so this, this is the connection point. And, and when we get into it, what are the types of values of of a culture of equity, right? We're looking at our relationships, putting people first, including ourselves, um, but not limited to ourselves. Um, We're looking at a strengths oriented narrative rather than a deficit oriented narrative for ourselves and how we talk to ourselves. And of course, for communities that can be pigeonholed and stereotyped um, and to break out of that, to, to frame it around strengths and aspirations, um, recognizing our interconnectedness, right? Again, moving away from the I, me, individualism, meritocracy, I did it all by myself framing, um, and shifting that to look at what these structures have allowed for me to do, not to blame and shame, right? But to have gratitude, to have affirmation and to utilize that power wherever it is that we have power to make sure other folks are getting access to those privileges, to those resources, ultimately. Um, So I'll pause there, but those are, I think, a few of the essential pieces. It's so helpful. And as you're as you're talking about shifting towards this culture of equity, you're making me reflect real time as often we have in our conversations, actually about the nature of the way that you and I work together. 
And it's reminding me of one of the first, so Nathan and I worked together, if you haven't figured this out on, um, on some work on some projects and, um, we started planning something earlier. I guess it was like March of this year to do this. We're doing like a 10 week series workshop for an organization. And we were kind of planning out all of our modules for it. And I was, I didn't realize how much I still had some culture of dominance parts of me where I was afraid of being um, not perfect. Right. And I remember we were going through this one module and Nathan had really good comments about it. And he was asking a lot of questions because he was really curious about something. And I started to have like an almost panic attack where I was like, oh my God, he's going to regret working with me. This isn't right. He thinks he made a mistake. I was, I, my brain just went into like pure hundred percent punishment mode and he paused and he's like, are you okay? And I was like, almost crying. I was like, I know it's not you. I know I'm having a moment and I'm freaking out because <laughs> I really think I messed up here. And it was this really interesting experience. Cause like I have been in that situation in workplaces where like I'll have presented something and I've had a very punitive manager or supervisor or boss who's like disappointed and kind of luxury and kind of like patronizing about whatever the product was when inevitably like down the road, my product was actually a little bit more correct for what was needed. I have noticed, but they didn't like it. And I was made to like do this weird turnaround to like present to the father, the answer in the right way a week later, right? Like this kind of a situation. And so that was embodied in my experience and my sense memory. So the mindfulness approach that Nathan used on me to just sit and like recollect and then figure out sort of like, it took me a couple of days to kind of release from that. But it, it happened so much faster because of the culture of equity that Nathan embodies and works with others. And that I was getting to practice in that moment to sort of be able to receive compassion that Nathan centered our relationship first. He didn't care about it being imperfect in my mind, right? He was just curious about what I was trying to put out in terms of like the content that we were creating together was very growth mindset oriented. There was tons of empathy. And I was like, oh my God, this is what it's like to work in a culture of equity. Working with Nathan is working in a culture of equity. And we do this frequently all this time. Like we're slow on episodes. Like we took three weeks off because our lives got really busy and we just checked in and we're like, it's cool. And, you know, we actually needed to just chat one day where we had to talk about our own lives to center our friendship and support each other and then come back to do the work later because it's all a part of it being both and so i appreciate you pausing that long for my ramble but no thank you ellen actually you know i think that grounds it with with stories that are you know alive for us um and when you shared that story it made me think of of another moment where i was going through some things emotionally uh a couple moments. One of them was um, the attack in Buffalo. And I was in tears when we came to our work meeting uh, in, in grief from the suffering that, that I was witnessing. And you held space for that, right? And it was a healing space that allowed us not to have to be quote unquote professional and have to move the product because this is our schedule right this moment. That's what it, that's you know that's when we're shifting from a culture of dominance of products first or profits first 
to people and relationships first, that's what that looks like in action. When, when people are able and willing to have enough compassion, right, first, and to build that up enough in themselves is, is really helpful to be able to extend that outward to others, um, then we can create spaces that are equitable, right? That's what, you know, that's, that's I think, really paints the picture of, of what it can look like. And of course, so many other ways. Um, I also wanted to circle back to your, to underscore your point about being mindful of how we're showing up. Um, and, and one of the ways that that can be tangible is pausing and checking, like what is happening in my body right now? What am I, am I reacting to something? And one of the ways that we do violence to ourselves is by not doing that, is by pushing through, pushing down what's alive, what, you know, especially when there's grief or suffering or pain um, that's manifesting from something that, you know, a, a world event or a personal life event that needs space to breathe, right? And if we don't allow that space and create that space, it doesn't mean like every moment, but being intentional to be present with what's coming up to be able to discern when we need to pause, when we need to give ourselves a break, whether that's five minutes or whether that's like, I need to take this day as a personal day or, or week or whatever it might be. And of course, conditions are not conducive to that because we live in a society that's run in a culture of dominance. And that's part of the challenge that we confront. But where we have a sphere of influence to any degree is where we need to start, right? Um, looking with our own time, where time that, you know, when we're not in survival mode, hopefully we can create spaces where we are attending to ourselves. And so going back just to the little moments you know, without getting too big about it and overwhelmed by all the, all the things, all the, all the, all the issues, um, coming back to manageable moments of just noticing, oh, I'm starting to get tension in my stomach or my neck is getting stiff or I'm sweating because of a reaction to something that happened and giving ourselves grace to feel what we're feeling and giving ourselves kindness by just being present with what's coming up, breathing into that space, uh, pausing, doing what we need to do to, to um, kind of release some of that. So essential, such an important starting point to start to embody and practice a culture of equity and to be able to extend that to others. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> one of the practice is so important. And I think it goes, I think it can get really lost in uh, some of the current workplaces. I want to shift a tiny bit here just briefly to talk about how equity work gets done in organizations and the importance of starting to notice if the how of equity, racial equity, diversity, inclusion training, if it's actually being implemented through a culture of dominance as opposed for the implementation and delivery for it to actually be coming through a culture of equity. Because what I'm reminded of right now is a conversation, I won't name the name or the place, uh, but as, as a, a woman I know, a woman of color, 
she took a new job at an organization where she's actually getting to do equity uh, work in terms of like just uh, implementing trainings and facilitation and all this kind of stuff. Getting called out in meetings for not doing something according to like the way that they do equity, which feels to me like they're trying to control her. And she's sitting here like, what is happening? Why am I getting lectured about doing equity wrong? This is so, and it's, it's very much about, um, it, it's kind of like they're doing equity through a culture of dominance lens. And I'm, I want to bring this up. So it's noticeable where they're a little bit like, they would never say, I'm not blaming, shaming, or coercing her to get on board, but the calling out is centering the product of equity over the relationship of their new employee who came in to contribute to a cause that is now being implemented in a way that's almost punitive if it's not being quote unquote done correctly. And that Mm -hmm. is equity not happening at all. And and it's an organization moving forward in a way that's still centering a culture of dominance to get everyone to comply with racial equity, diversity, and inclusion in the way that they've decided it needs to be done. That's backfiring. And Mm -hmm. it made me go, oh my gosh, how do you, how do you even get someone who's so still in that position to see that they have lost the centering of the relationship first? and the valuing of difference that not just one right way, like, oh my gosh. And maybe I was thinking of that while you were talking, just like what happens when you're in an organization that's saying they're doing the work, but it's still in, in the old system, in the system of culture of dominance where they're controlling. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I think that's a really difficult example and, and not uncommon uh, necessarily. Um, and to me, that's the difference between, doing diversity and inclusion work versus doing equity work, even if they are calling it equity work, because uh, going circling back to our earlier conversations, when we're doing diversity and inclusion, it's saying we want more diversity and we want folks to feel included, but we're not really shifting the culture We're we're still expecting people to conform to the way we've done things essentially, or the way that we treat people doesn't really shift. Right. Uh, the culture hasn't changed and the power dynamics haven't changed. So that's not equity work, right? Even if we're calling it that. So that to me is like the, the, the key point is how are we bringing it back to ourselves and not just expecting other people to change or conform? Um, how are we internalizing this process in a way where we're seeing where our own biases are and our own influences from culture of dominance are affecting us so that we can be better representatives embodied and in relationship with others uh, to model equity. And, you know, there isn't a quick answer to that. It's a process of commitment to doing equity work inside and out. So it's not just at the policy level. It's not just uh, in, in a, in a, in a worksheet or a tool or a value statement. Um, It's also, how are we showing up? It's self work. It's leadership development work. Like if we shift the definition perhaps of leadership development, that's leadership development work. Like how do we show up uh, to take care of people and ourselves through a a racial equity, diversity and inclusion lens? 
a frame that looks at our intersecting identities and centers equity that, you know, there's, there's a lot of learning and a lot of humility that's necessary for that. What I really like, Nathan, as we kind of wrap up, I just realized, can I read? So Nathan has this list that we're going to share with you so you can look at it. It's by him, but it's informed by a number of other people as well. And he has this the sources cited. So if you get really curious, you can do more research and reading. But what if the culture of equity were, you know how in a lot of meetings, people have group agreements or ground agreements uh, for ground mm-hmm. rules for how they how they operate? Uh, what if these become, I just want to put it out there. What if these are the new group agreements or ground rules for how you are in spaces with your colleagues? And then think about it when you're in spaces with just your personal relationships and yourself. I love that. I love that because it's, um, it's such a tangible, like within reach action that folks can do. Okay. So I'm going to read it. (laughs) Interconnectedness, shared humanity. Oh, I think it's going to be, I will have, or I will practice. I have to put a sentence in front of it. So I will have, I will practice interconnectedness and shared humanity. I will practice compassion and seeing myself and others. I will practice a strengths oriented narrative for myself and others. I will center relationships and people first. I will practice and believe in collective interest and practice empathy. I will value difference and know that there is not just one right way. I will be in a growth mindset. I will award myself intrinsically. I will be mindful of intersectionality. I will focus on abundance and sharing oriented motivations. And I will practice kindness, gratitude, and affirmation. What a great list, Nathan. Thank you for creating that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for for putting it into an actionable (laughs) frame. Yeah. Anything else as we wrap on our conversation today? Mm, You know, well, yeah, on the the topic of gratitude, uh, I want to express my gratitude to you. Um, These conversations uh, are always lively and and thought-provoking, I think, uh, it's it's a beautiful opportunity to share about these important topics and really grateful to you for helping to co-create this space. Yeah. Nathan, thank you too so much for doing this. And I realize I said today, but uh, we're, we're ending the mini series on, on this note, this episode, we might create something else down the road. Um, but yeah, thank you for those of you who've listened. Thank you so much for joining us on, on these conversations. We really appreciate you too. Thank you, Nate. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Thanks so much for tuning in today and listening to the show. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And if you love the show, leave a five-star review so others can find us. To learn more about my work and what I do, go to ellenwyomingdeloy.com. Thanks. See you next time.